Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 94 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I am happy to finally get one of my truly most elusive guests that I, Gabby and I, Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, have been talking about getting you on for, well, shit, a few years. And even more recently, the scheduling has been <clears throat> kind of a snag. And it, it sort of speaks to just how much you have going on. So for anyone who's not super familiar with you, well, let's see. So A, you're a coach. Uh, you are a former assistant professor of exercise science at Georgia Gwinnett College. I'm going to read some of this stuff off. You have a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise from Virginia Tech, uh, a BS, exercise, sports, and health education. And you've written for Precision Nutrition, Shape, Oxygen, Reader's Digest. You are you work as part of examine.com, and you currently write for Barband as well. And one of the things that I've probably pointed at, pointed to, to you the most is I consider you to be the leading authority on gut health in the fitness industry. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but it's great to have you on. So what did I miss? I think because um, <laughs> I looked at your website, just like, like all right, I want to check all this out. I'm like, I, I, I Terry picked the highlights. Um, yeah, I would say the other couple of projects I have going on would be um, that I am in my, I think, ninth month of hosting the Gut Health with Gab webinar series. So I've been taking turns hosting um, various evidence-based speakers in the gut health um, space and presenting myself as well. And I'm also um, producing a 12-part uh, gut health series for a company that produces educational content and that's slated for release in a couple of years. Um, so quite, quite a lot of writing, quite a lot of reading and writing <laughs> as of late. And hey, there's one more thing I did forget too, is for quite a while, you were part of the Renaissance periodization team, which is where you first hit my radar as well. And you were, you were slated to appear as part of a fitness conference for Edmonton in 2019, but ultimately that one was canceled. So we never got to meet in person at that one. So uh, but anyway, let's let's go right into something that I like about your media. You're probably one of the most nuanced health, science, nutrition educators, certainly in our space. And we know that it's our space is social media does this, it amplifies the overblown, the sensational, the extreme. And what's been your philosophy to cutting through that, you know, personally and as sort of like almost advice to other people who struggle because they feel like their nuanced evidence-based message is lost in amongst the, the liver kings and the, the other lunacy. And, and even, I'll even say this, even within some of the people who are deeply evidence-based, I've noticed a rise in uh, you know, attacking each other, malice, negativity, and, and sensationalism to cut through the noise. So how do you navigate that? Um, I would say there have been a few sort of like pivotal moments of awakening in my career um, that have led me to the way that I um, navigate the space now. Uh, one was a comment from a follower in my early days when I used to kind of solely bust gut health myths. And a person said, this is really negative. People need to hear what they can do. And at first I kind of bristled at that. I thought, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not bullying anyone. I'm just pointing out, you know, the fallacies here. But then I realized, you know, yeah, actually that's, that is totally reasonable. That is a request for something actionable. And so I still bust myths, but my take now is that I have this sort of, I have this theme of the science and the science fiction. 
So the reason that pseudoscience is often so successfully um, spread is that there is often a grain of truth to it. And so it can't be easily completely written off. And so what I try to do now is provide a more balanced perspective that says, you know, if we're looking at something like a candida cleanse or the 5R protocol or the carnivore diet, where are the grains of truth or legitimacy? What are the potential benefits or the potential pros or, or like the non-harmful aspects of this? And then what, where is the complete nonsense? So what's, how do we separate science from science fiction? Another um, really pivotal um, moment, or I would say a pivotal influence would be just a lot of conversations with Eric Helms. Um, I consider him to be a, a mentor and sort of like the a moral compass in the fitness industry because I think he does a really excellent job of um, modeling collegiality and, um, and, and integrity and you know, standing by his values and also providing um, an, an evidence-based and very um, empirical perspective. And so like I identify as a diehard empiricist, like I need to see the evidence. And so I'm aware of that in myself and that that is going to influence my perspectives and, and, uh, and, and bias my perspectives to some extent. And so we've talked a lot about how um, you know, different um, how, how different people might take the same body of literature and interpret it in different ways. Uh, and, you know, even people who have like very similar or the same type of degree can take something away from the literature that seems to be quite different. Um, and then, you know, how we can potentially find like the middle ground. Um, and I think the final thing would be that uh, it, my training in motivational interviewing as really a way of being with people and a way of communicating has helped me to approach pretty much everyone with much more empathy and um, and seeking to understand them. And that I'm not really here to prove anything to anyone. You know, I'm, I don't owe anyone anything and no one owes me anything. Um, and what I'm here to do is, is my very best job at communicating the literature in a way that is actionable, that is understandable to people and not necessarily to try and like take down the loud voices of Liver King and whoever else, but that hopefully um, through, you know, an empathetic um, understanding and compassionate approach, I can validate a person's experience. Like they've had some digestive complaints while also providing them with accurate information. And so I think that's a way to sort of like, you know, prevent the arguments and the back and forth and really just say like, here is some information. Um, here's the evidence, you know, here are the, the resources that I use to, to reach this conclusion. And um, hopefully that's helpful. And even if it's something that someone sees in a comment, you know, that I haven't necessarily spoken to them directly, um, that I can provide that information in a way that is non-confrontational um, and that often makes it a little bit more, um, I think, um, approachable to people. Like they're, they're more receptive if someone's not like, you know, you're wrong and here's why. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there and I'll piggyback on a couple of things. I, I, I don't think you said it in there, but I'll certainly say it. I personally try to stay away from really controversial stuff or antagonistic stuff or the thing that the trend I've seen is sort of like attacking other people in whatever form that attack takes, even if it's ostensibly under the, the backing of 
you know, of evidence because I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to get involved in the back and forth and, and the nastiness that goes on on social media. So that's a conscientious choice for me. I just don't want to play that game. And then you mentioned Eric Helms. So he's a great example. So I had Dr. Mike Gazertel on recently and Mike pointed to Eric as an example of a group of people within the, the fitness community who tend to be more conservative in their interpretations of and what they will, the claims that they will make based on research. And it was in response to my question to get him to sort of provide nuance as to why we're seeing other individuals in the industry that he then explained were probably a bit more liberal in their explorations of. Uh, and Andrew Huberman, Rhonda Patrick are probably the two best examples I could think of who still retain this air of credibility and authority in the industry. However, they've come under a great deal of criticism for saying things that some of the more conservative elements say, well, that actually isn't what the research says on this. And me personally, I feel Rhonda likes to wander vastly outside of her scope of practice. And I'm not interested in tearing down Rhonda. I don't know her. But she seems to have gotten into the mainstream. And she seems to say a lot of interesting things about a lot of different topics, which for me, a red flag is when someone really steps outside of their, their educational background. But either way, sort of a, a liberal interpretation versus a more conservative interpretation. And agreed, I think Eric Helms is a really great example of someone who does it with grace, who is, you know, very positive about how he goes about things. If he's going to say something, he's going to be very, he's going to have it backed up. And you seem to fall into that same sort of camp of that, hey, I'm, I'm not going to really reach out on crazy limbs here. Or if you kind of wander, you're probably going to make it very clear that, hey, you know what, we need to see a lot more research on this. I think this is promising. Whereas a lot of the other people tend to make more absolute claims. So any just additional thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think that um, we need to, and, and we, that's the royal we, <laughs> it is important to me to be transparent about the uh, strength of the evidence and whether something is a supposition that I'm making based on my current understanding or something that has actually been, you know, tested and reproduced in, in a research setting. And, um, and I think that is also, you know, something that's, that is a personal style of mine because I really value um, and, and it's something that I do with my coaching as well um, and, and try to uphold a person's ability to make an informed decision. And when they don't have all the information or the information is presented in a way that is extremely liberal, they may make a decision that is really not in their best interest. Um, and, and that's where I think the harm can come in and that it really behooves us to provide a nuanced perspective because then we're much less likely to end up in that place where people start to really doubt our credibility um, because they've seen how many times we've said things that are just completely you know, patently false uh, that they start to doubt everything else that we're saying. And, and so I think it's you know, doing ourselves a favor when we're a little bit more conservative, or at the very least, we say we, we differentiate between our opinion, our our you know suppositions, and what's really played out in the literature. All right. So, again, mentioning how you know, you to me certainly you are I will say it explicitly the most credible person when it comes to gut microbiome, gut health, and but it's a space that a lot of people wander into, and it seems like there's a lot of subject matter experts. A lot of those people are making really crazy claims. Is there anything? I mean this is literally a, a big chunk of your work, but is there anything very 
at the surface level that you kind of like to point people to to say, okay, here's how to navigate the people who are sharing this information or the information itself. Is there anything that tends to be overblown but yet widely believed? Or is there anything that you really think, hey, I want to share this with fitness professionals because most of my audience are coaches so that way they can then navigate this space because I'm pretty sure you've said something to the equivalent that, you know, it certainly the effects that gut microbiome, gut health have on all of the other systems of our body. A, the evidence isn't necessarily abundant or super strong and B, the effects are probably not as significant as people are making, making it sound like. Um, I think um, as a whole, gut microbiome research is difficult to accurately communicate. Um, and there are really some excellent publications out there about some of the significant limitations in the field because it is so incredibly new. I mean, we're really looking at a field that has just, you know, come onto the sort of the mainstream in maybe the last 10 years. And we're still developing new technologies to be able to study the microbiome with um, a, a, a usable <laughs> level of resolution. And so there, there's not a lot that we can take away from the findings right now that, that would be considered you know, largely applicable and actionable for everyone across the board, aside from it's, it's probably a good idea to eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And there seems to be some relationship between the microbiome and physical activity. Um, and, and those things are not popular, you know, they're not super sexy. They're sort of like, you know, back to the basics and that sounds really boring and people want to feel a difference. And it's really impossible to do that when it comes to the actual microbiota. We can't, we can't actually feel what's going on with them. And so we sort of use these other, um, subjective experiences as surrogates like bloating, gas, stool quality. And then when you add on top of that, that we have these really ambiguous terms with no research-based definition, like good gut health and bad gut health, it's really easy to make sweeping generalized statements that sound logical, that you can add um, you know, a PubMed link to in, in support of whatever you're saying. But when you look at that, it's actually you know, a narrative review or it is... Um, you know, it's coming up with potential theories like the the uh, estrobilome is one area where we really have almost no, um, and this is the, the sort of the interaction between gut microbes and circulating estrogens. Um, there are quite a few observational studies. There are, there's a plethora of narrative reviews. There is really nothing in the way of, of interventions in terms of you know, like a randomized control trial where we can start to actually clarify the relationships. And yet we see a lot of infographics, a lot of people making claims about how bad gut health can influence your estrogen levels. And that is really in the absence of any legitimate, um, you know, or I should say any strong evidence from, from humans. Another area that we see this uh, would be when we're looking at a comprehensive stool analysis. This is something that's promoted by a lot of practitioners and coaches. The idea being that if you can get a picture of which microbes are present in your stool, that that indicates which, which microbes are present in your gut microbiome as a whole, and that you can somehow modify that to improve health. Um, and while it is valid in the sense that um, the 
the methods used to identify those microbes are the same methods that we would use in a lab if we were running, you know, if we, if we were doing some research. It's really the interpretation that is invalid, that would be inaccurate, because those reference ranges are set by the manufacturers. They're not based on any sort of scientific consensus out of the out of the community where we've said, yes, we've analyzed 80,000 different gut microbiomes, and we can certainly say that everyone is supposed to have this amount of this type of microbe, and if you don't, then there's something wrong. Um, but that's how it's interpreted. They they see, oh, you have too much of this microbe or not enough of this microbe, and you have to take this probiotic or use this supplement. Um, and, and that's where the science fiction comes in. And so it's something that's really widely used and promoted. Um, and, and I think really to the detriment of whatever comes out in the future that's actually the, the thing that, that will be helpful because people will say, oh, you know, those, those things are bunk. Like I used that before and, and that's not real. Um, so I, we don't want to put the cart before the horse with something like that. Is there an element of people trying to sell the idea or products that you can change something that we probably have a lot less influence over than people want to believe? Big smiling nod. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and I think this comes from, um, you know, the beliefs that like, you know, more, more is better, you know, that, that we can, we have agency over like every aspect of our health and that we are, um, sort of guilty until proven innocent, you know, when it comes to health, like we sort of assume that something must be wrong unless we know that it's been optimized, and we're constantly searching for the the way to optimize every aspect of health, and uh, that's where we end up sort of like out in in the weeds, so to speak, you know, trying to find like the perfect probiotic supplement or, or you know the the herbal tincture to take, um, when in fact you know those things probably have a fairly minimal influence on the gut microbiome um, as compared to our our age, our gender, our geographic location, you know, a lot of the factors that we really don't have any control over. Um, and, and the current estimate is that those factors and, and our, our species um, probably account for about two-thirds of the shape of the microbiome, so to speak, and then only about one third is, is actually um, under our, our influence. But we really don't know the magnitude of influence that we have you know, over that, that one third. I definitely know that my gut health took a hit at the second half of my trip to Mexico several years ago. But that's, that's alluding to geography, right? And the differences, and that's, that's actually, that's a joke and a side thing, but it kind of alludes to what you were saying. Are there any safe general recommendations that you can sort of say to coaches here? This stuff is pretty safe stuff uh, to talk with your clients about. For example, you started with saying eating more fruits and vegetables. Like what, and you mentioned probiotics and I know on your media, you've been sort of talking about how the promise of probiotics is probably very overblown. So any safe recommendations there? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the strongest evidence we have is in favor of eating a uh, plant-centric diet. There's no clear advantage to being vegan or vegetarian over being omnivorous, assuming that whatever dietary pattern you're following is prudent. So you are eating adequate levels of microbe accessible carbohydrates. So these are the fermentable carbohydrates, the dietary fibers, that enter the large intestine and can be metabolized by the microbes there. So the fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, um, nuts, seeds, you know, making that 
um, a large part, a large portion of your dietary pattern and probably limiting processed meats. Um, there, there is again, no consensus, uh, no consensus ratio on the amount of protein to the amount of fiber um, that would be considered to be most health promoting or, or least risky in terms of you know, colorectal cancer. You probably just safer try to optimize your protein intake for your otherwise your health. And you're probably best off just focusing on staying within a range of fiber that's enough, but not so much that it's physically uncomfortable. So I guess those are the bigger rocks versus trying to yes. optimize for gut health, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And there are probably some people saying or thinking, you know, but if I eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains, if I eat fiber, I feel very bloated, I feel very gassy. That is absolutely valid. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with your gut. That gas production is a result of the bacterial fermentation of those microbe accessible carbs. So it means that your gut microbes are essentially uh, munching on that. They're making energy for themselves, just like we have to do for ourselves. Um, but if that is the case, then um, after you know visiting a gastroenterologist, because that's my other recommendation, if things are off to visit a, a GI doc, um, if you have a clean bill of health and it's most likely just a dietary thing, looking into something that is um, a, more of a systematic elimination and reintroduction process of the most obvious gas promoting foods, rather than trying to remove everything wholesale and then like only eating meat for the rest of your life, um, it is possible to modify your, your dietary pattern to have digestive comfort without eliminating huge, huge food groups. And you just hit on something big. And that's why I've always nuanced when I have that discussion about carnivore dieting. Uh, I mean, I train a cardiologist and he does, he sort of takes a very dim view on its, you know, long-term likelihood of what the health outcomes will be, but it can be very appealing to people. And I know people in person who uh, prefer the carnivore diet because, well, to say it in one way, it's more hypoallergenic in terms of how your gastrointestinal tract reacts to just a straight meat diet. And then if immediately is alleviating those symptoms, it's easy to be convinced, especially if you have a couple of like, quote, doctors famously promoting it as being, you know, this, this panacea of health. It's easy to be lured into believing those claims, but you yourself feel better. I mean, that's the most compelling evidence that anybody's going to be presented with. Any thoughts to navigating that conversation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is of the utmost importance to feel better. And you could also feel better eating in other ways that are less risky for your health long-term. And having just written on this, <laughs> um, I would also say that the evidence used to support following the carnivore diet is actually almost entirely based on paleolithic style or ketogenic style diets, which can still contain carbohydrates. And also, um, the carnivore diet isn't necessarily, over time, uh, isn't necessarily carbohydrate-free either. Uh, it, I think that perspectives are really changing, even um, from the voices of like the major spokespeople, the major doctors, that they did over time actually reintroduce some carbohydrates and that um, it's, it becomes more like carnivore adjacent is one of the terms that, that I saw on one of the websites. 
So I think even they are realizing that long-term a meat-only diet isn't the most prudent approach. Um, but that probably gets lost because the original version of that diet and the way that it's promoted is often a very strict carnivore diet. And people then, like you said, they feel better. And so they don't, there's no real compelling reason for them to start to reintroduce these foods that made them feel worse and go through this whole process of testing and, and eliminating and whatnot, because that can seem really overwhelming. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, a, it's a person's choice. But again, I think it's, it's important that they're making an informed choice and realizing that there is a very, very little research on the long-term effects of a meat-only diet. Um, and, and so if someone is seeing that this is, you know, highly substantiated evidence-based way of eating, that alone is a bit of a red flag. So at least we could say, we don't really know what this is going to do to you, but there's plenty of evidence to suggest that it's probably pretty risky long-term and there are more prudent ways of going about, um, you know, improving your digestive comfort. Awesome. You can hear a garbage truck outside, so hopefully it's not too noisy. So I definitely wanted to go back around to the what I alluded to earlier about where we're seeing this trend towards more combative uh, battling of misinformation. And I had this conversation recently with uh, Dr. Caleb Burgess, who's more in the physio realm, because that's definitely showing up in their world. But I, I know a lot of this stuff is definitely directed at what I like to point out as popular or verifiable charlatans. Uh, you know, I think Lane Norton is a good example of someone who has kind of built a heavy part of his brand around taking on the prominent people who make some pretty big claims that are, you know, not supported by the evidence and people who have their own like marketing narratives. But I, I definitely have also observed more infighting. And as you alluded to earlier about the different interpretations of research, or maybe there's a different tribe that, you know, they're probably even more current or, or have more mastery over what the research is actually saying about something. And maybe they're just fighting against well-intentioned fitness professionals who maybe are still holding on to older beliefs. But I'm more interested in your thoughts on the, the behavior itself and why this is becoming more, maybe it's not becoming more common. Maybe we're just noticing it more, but I feel like social media certainly amplifies this stuff. So any thoughts on the rise of targeting within these industries, because we know it goes on in nutrition, we know it goes on in physio, we know it goes on in fitness, and those things are all adjacent. So your thoughts. You know, I, I, I try to maintain a charitable perspective, even of people that I um, don't completely understand and, and wouldn't agree with their behavior. I try to understand what's going on behind it. Um, and I've received quite a lot of, um, I would say, hate mail, maybe vitriol uh, in, in, the space where I'm speaking about uh, intuitive eating and weight neutral approaches and fat phobia and weight stigma. Uh, and it's really a, a large part of the reason that, you know, I've made, I've, like my, my career has, has changed. And I've changed direction um, and my coaching has changed appreciably as well. Uh, and I've received it from people who are, are staunchly anti-diet and staunchly, you know, I would say pro-diet just to, to, you know, provide the, um, an umbrella term there. Um, and and what I've what I find is that you know both sides are operating based on their understanding of what would be least harmful or most helpful, and and both sides are passionate, uh, and both sides are trying to relieve suffering, and where they differ really is just in 
um, what they believe to be harmful and what they believe to be causing suffering. Uh, so I, I think that um, what we're seeing is probably, you know, what happens in the fitness industry, we end up with like a super hot topic for a period of time. Uh, we get a lot of people who are fired up about that specific topic. And then we get people who are very, um, their, their, their approach is to uh, attack the person rather than the idea. And then we get that back and forth of, you know, you're not operating under the same set of beliefs that I am. And so you must be wrong. And there's there, we, and we can find no common middle ground and I need to change your idea, uh, change or, or change your mind or make you feel bad about the way, the things that you believe. And so shame has played a, a large role uh, in both sides as well. And um, that's another thing that I've, started to write about and I've directed some people to, um, um, oh no, I can't remember her name. Brene Loretta, Brown. Huh? Well, Brene Brown too. Um, but there's a, a woman who's, who's written a New York Times article uh, about calling in versus calling out culture. And we, we see a lot of calling out culture and that creates more division and creates more conflict and doesn't actually serve the purpose that people I think want it to serve, which is to influence the beliefs and practices of others. Uh, it's funny because I thought you were going right for Brene Brown, whose work on this stuff I think is wonderful. And you know, as far as authors go, uh, there's a lot of authors I wave around, but Brene especially, I wish more fitness professionals would dive whole headlong into Brene's work because it's improved, you know, interactions in my own relationships with certainly, you know, the, the empathy and understanding of what a lot of other people are going through. And you're mentioning about, you know, doing some stuff on the nuance of not being super pro diet, but the, the extreme, the super anti diet. Uh, mm -hmm. So he Lee put up a post just at the end of last year talking about this and uh, she had tagged me in it. So he's an old friend. And she there were commenters in there who were very on that like anti diet. And I would say it's a little extreme. And her message, no, they they attacked that they weren't. And so he is one of the most nuanced empathetic, like thoughtful people when it comes to this, very open about how her attitudes have shifted over time, kind of like what you alluded to. And you've got people who don't, this message is not good enough. They, they absolutely cannot in any way endorse any sort of form of dieting. And it's like, holy shit. And it can be frustrating and scary for other fitness professionals to see well-intentioned, nuanced, thoughtful messaging to still come under fire. And I guess that is sort of social media. And what you said about attacking the idea, not the person. I've personally observed people who ostensibly attack the idea, but the attacks, they're, they're, they're gaslighting. They're straight up gaslighting individuals. They come in in a combative nature. Um, the, they're naive to think that they're ever going to, their goal is to get the person to capitulate to admitting, oh, the wickedness of their former beliefs and completely reverse their attitudes and, and thank the person who is you know, educating them. And this is ridiculous because that doesn't work that way. Like you said, right? It's a calling out. And then when the person reacts in a way that can be expected, this is where the gaslighting comes in. Then I've noticed the tribe attacks. They shame. They post up in, in stories to swarm the individual who they've targeted in the first place, which again is pure gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And then they go on. And then a lot of times the, the followers of the tribe are actually quite malicious and quite harassing. 
And ultimately, this shit is harassment, no matter how well-intentioned. And I put up a post about this a while ago, and it, it, it attracted some attention to where some people were really nasty about it, because their belief is, no, the ends justify the means. If you have the evidence research to support your position, you can be the most demonstrable aggressive asshole and you're, <laughs> you're on the right side of it. So I've kind of been watching this trend on multiple fronts within the industry as a whole, because one of my concerns is that you know younger, newer coaches are gonna see this crap and, and be absolutely terrified of saying anything online or on social media. The flip side is, I mean, I think we do have to, we have a duty of care to try to know what we're talking about. And if we're going to say something to actually substantiate it, or at least be on the right side of the evidence, but even still, again, like any additional thoughts on this sort of this behavior? Yeah. And you know what, I've actually heard from a few coaches who are, um, are moving into this middle ground space or are wanting to start their careers in this middle ground space. And they do feel really legitimate fear and apprehension about, um, about being attacked or ostracized and really from either side, you know, I've had folks reach out to me to say, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this project for this group and I don't feel really completely comfortable with the message that they're sending. And like, how do I navigate this? Because I don't want to cause harm or, you know, I want to um, move away from, you know, a weight focused approach, but I'm really worried about speaking about haze because, you know, I'm afraid of, of the attacks on that side. What's really interesting, um, and, and I've seen this more so on Twitter than I have on Instagram, is that even within one space, even within the diet or the anti-diet space, there are the there are cohorts of individuals who um, who could be considered aggressive even to others that are in their space, um, and that and and, and that even the, you know, I don't know if I've, if you've heard like the term to like shoot your darlings, you know, that like even something that maybe was really popular a couple of years ago that seemed to be kind of like, you know, had this halo um, around it now is, is being ostracized and is under attack because of, you know, people's beliefs about how it has caused harm. Um, so uh, again, I think that um, the best that we can possibly do is to get get aligned with our values in terms of you know do what do I value? I value compassion, conscientiousness, integrity, um, empirical evidence, um, nuance. I I try to do the least amount of harm possible, and I do try to provide just like the objective data, you know, so that a person can make an informed decision. And I also borrow from the, the, the findings on abstinence-only sex education that abstinence-only sex ed is actually really ineffective mm-hmm. for promoting health and, and well-being and informed decisions and that it actually doesn't reduce teen pregnancy. And so if we want people to be aware of the potential risks that could come from intentional weight loss, 
then we have to provide that information in an objective way that is not blaming or shaming them, that doesn't cause them to like avoid talking about it and keeping it a secret that they might still want to lose weight. And that provides them with the safest potential route. So kind of teaching people how to do a thing that's risky in the safest way possible because they are autonomous adults. And if we want to support things like bodily autonomy, then we say, here's how you can do this thing that's potentially risky in the safest way possible, rather than saying this is patently harmful across the board and no one should be doing this. That's not going to stop people from doing it. It's not going to stop people from coaching how to do it. It's just going to limit people to access only the really shitty ways of doing it. So, and you know, and I say the same thing can be applied for weight neutral approaches that if we only allow people to understand intuitive eating based on tropes and memes that misrepresent it, they won't be able to make an informed decision about whether intuitive eating or other weight neutral approaches might be appropriate for them or not. And they might come out with a significant misunderstanding and think, oh, intuitive eating sounds like I just eat whatever sounds good at any point in time, regardless of how I'm feeling. And that's not the case either. So I think, again, it comes down to just trying our best to represent the concepts and, um, and to, you know, also establish and maintain boundaries. Like I don't get involved anymore really with like comment sections. Like every once in a while, I might respond to a person who's commented on something that I've written if they're very clearly uh, confused about it. But when people tag me to say like, hey, vitamin PhD, what do you think about this? I'm just like, I don't get involved in this stuff anymore. It's just not worth my time. So, um, so that's my, my take on it. <laughs> can be a big time sink and anybody who certainly developed a reputation for that combative style um, gets tagged into a lot of things because then all the followers want them to go like, again, Lane Norton gets tagged in everything that is whatever about nutrition with the expectation that Lane is going to come in and bring the fire and the brimstone and, and bury the person who's made some whatever claim. Uh, and again, that's the danger of developing that reputation though. I think and I'd like to point to Lane specifically because I think he's unique. He's sort of a unicorn in that space where if anybody mistakes, I've said this before, if anybody mistakes thinking that Lane built his prominence and his success solely on the fact that he sort of plays a character of himself as he's fighting these charlatans, they're completely missing the point. Uh, Lane has a massive library, a legacy of educational material and a very credible, credibly educated individual on top of that outward persona. Whereas if a young fitness professional tries to go the other way and build an entire reputation based upon combative behavior, then they need to backfill it with all the other work and, and library of resources and educational resources in order to be able to ever pull it off. And I think Lane is quite unique in that space. So I don't, I think he's, I actually love what he's able to do on, on the broader scale but I don't think he's necessarily the model to follow for young coaches who are trying to make a name for themselves. Um, there was something I wanted to throw in there. And I think it's, it's sort of a, an example of what you were alluding to in, I'll try to explain this. It can be very difficult. It can be valuable to pull ideas from adjacent things. Like you, you mentioned sex education, right? But there's also different things can, seem almost contradictory. And the example I like to use is, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the research supports that people 
are less likely to return to smoking if they think of themselves as non-smokers versus ex-smokers, right? I think that's, you're nodding, so I think that's solid. But when it comes to, say, Alcoholics Anonymous, which isn't necessarily the most evidence-based thing, but it also seems to really work really fucking well, even if it's got that spiritual element to it, a religious element, they very much institute this idea that you always have to be very vigilant against falling back into to alcoholism or drinking. So it keeps very forefront the identity, very strong identity as uh, someone who used to drink. And those two things are very opposing ideas. And I suspect it's just, maybe it's a, a matter of self-selection. Like for me, I think I, I tend to lean towards the identity side where the, the non-smoker, I didn't smoke before. I used to have a difficult relationship with alcohol in my and, and a partying lifestyle in my mid to late 20s. I'm 44 now. And that's all long gone. And it's like someone else's life. So to me, I am the non-partier, right? Whereas I truly believe that for other people, keeping forefront that former identity, there are people in our industry who their past wild lifestyle behavior is very forefront in their branding and their media, and they stay hyper vigilant against ever falling back into it. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts about that. Yeah, and that is the case with all of the the twelve step programs. So they have Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Codependence Anonymous. That the that part of the twelve step process is identifying as that in the really the present tense. That when you introduce yourself, you say, "I'm so and so, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm an addict, or whatever it is." And the reason for that is that that it is a reminder to um, constantly have that, like you, you mentioned, like the vigilance, that awareness, and that is a long-term management approach that because you are this person, because this is part of your identity, that you can't become complacent. And I think that that um, it might be even more applicable when we're looking at something that like alcohol or cigarettes, where unlike eating, where we can practice in moderation, there is no moderation for um, that type of, of legitimate addiction. Where it becomes difficult to apply that to food is that we haven't really determined whether food is a behavioral versus real chemical addiction in the same way that, that nicotine or alcohol would be. Um, and that we can't go cold turkey on food. <laughs> we can't stop eating food. And so we have to find a way of, um, of, of modifying our food intake. And that also, you know, our relationships with food are as complex as our relationships could be with alcohol or with cigarettes that, you know, it's not something that we're just using for um, fuel just for, for, you know, energy balance, but it plays so many different roles in our lives and that we can't um, extricate it from those roles either. And so it becomes a much more complex, um, thing to manage than saying like, I, you know, I, whether or not we say I'm an alcoholic or I'm an ex-alcoholic, the, the one thing that we have to do is just not drink alcohol or not smoke cigarettes. Um, I think that with something like, or, or not use narcotics, maybe something with, uh, something like codependency might be a little bit more, 
uh, relatable to, to food because with codependency, we have self-esteem issues. We have boundary issues. Um, we can't go cold turkey out of relationships either. And codependency is relational. And so if we are around any other human beings, <laughs> then we're going to have to find a way to manage that. And so that becomes much more about long-term management, understanding ourselves and trying to find um, healthier ways of relating to other people in the same way that we can find healthier ways of relating to food and exercise. Love it. That, that's a cool, cool direction that that conversation went. And what I really hope people take out of this is these things are profoundly nuanced. There are no simple, straightforward answers. And I, I think anybody listening is probably deeply, and I'll use the term indoctrinated in the idea that you know, the overblown, simple solutions uh, to complex problems are just false promises, right? So I think everybody who's listening here is a sort of person who's probably more frustrated about this sort of stuff, rather than people who are themselves vulnerable to it. But we know that the people that we work with can very much be uh, lured in by this stuff um, that we've talked through up and down this episode. Obviously, I can't do justice to just the legacy of your work. So let's point people to where to find you, your media, so that we can actually dig in more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am on Instagram at Vitamin PhD. Uh, same thing on Facebook. Uh, Facebook's kind of just like a mirror for Instagram. <laughs> I'm not the most active on social media. From time to time, I take long breaks. Um, I also have a website. It's vitaminphdnutrition.com. Uh, I also run the comprehensive coaching community with my friend Shannon, and you can find that at uh, btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. And um, I also have content on examine.com and barben.com. So if folks want to check out the, the um, multitude of other <laughs> uh, pieces of writing, and um, that's all I can think of right now. But oh, and I'm on Twitter as, as well at the vitamin PhD. Uh, and I haven't posted in a while, but that's where I, I do like the, that Twitter is a little bit more academic and I can like share some, some thoughts. So, um, so you can find me in different places. Yeah. And social media ultimately is going to be a mirror of whatever you're engaging with. So if you're determined to dive into the, the more extreme and the shittier stuff, you're going to find it and the algorithm will show it to you. So, um, intention, intentionality with social media, I think is wise. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to do this. So if everybody, anybody listening, if you are just finding Gabrielle, please go check out her media. Okay. I hope something within this resonated with you and helped you. If you're someone who is finding me through Gabrielle's media, uh, because of this podcast, then, well, we have, I've had Eric Helms on a long time ago. It's, you got to dig in a little bit. But maybe some other people who, uh, you know, in, in similar spaces, you know, Sohi Lee has been a guest a number of times on this uh, particular format of the podcast. There's 150 old episodes before the 94 current ones. And, uh, and so he's been on, I think, once for sure. And I'm trying to remember, you know, what? she's been on a bunch of times on the old one between the two. So check out Sohi, scroll through the list of people that I've had on. You're going to see a lot of familiar names that you like. And if you like it, maybe you'll stick around. Anyway, Gabby, thank you so much. And uh, everybody else, stay tuned for next week.